morning we'll be in the 18th chapter of Matthew as we continue to wake, make our way uh, through Matthew's gospel. This morning we are addressing this idea that the heartbeat of the church is humility. The heartbeat of the church is humility. The reality is belonging is major. Psychologists tell us that the reality is we all, some in some ways, some more than others, but we all desire interaction with others, some type of community. Um, typically, sometimes that's small for two or three, but the reality is we want some type of belonging, some type of relationship in which we realize that we care for them and they care for us. And the reality is you've likely been a part of different groups at different points, right? For some of you, you may be a part of, of some type of group or organization here in the community that cares for the less fortunate or those who maybe have less access. For some of you, you've been advocates of the unborn or those who maybe racial minorities or different groups that experience discrimination. You've been a voice for them. For others of you, you've been a part of groups, of teams, right, where maybe you were a part of, of a sports team or you were with the band or some part of the performing arts or academics. The reality is being a part of that group impacted you. It may have impacted you in the classroom to do better so you could be a part of that. Right? It may have impacted your physical health so that you could participate in that. The reality is we all long to be a part of groups, and groups often are healthy, right? It's community. The reality is, as we come to the New Testament, the Bible tells us that we actually are a part of another community and one that has eternal significance. It's the church. And as today we look to Matthew 18, we're going to realize that the call for the church is not merely to attend, but to be a faithful member, to be a part in covenant community with one another, walking beside each other. And that's really what Matthew 18, a lot is unfolding here as Jesus is going to preach. And um, I think for a moment, as you think about the church, you might imagine a church that is unique, is significant, right? I mean, think about this. Imagine for a moment a church, as you think about it, where others are more important than yourself. Imagine for a moment a church where the holiness of God is revealed by the way in which people live different than the world. Imagine a church in a place where when people don't show up or people are struggling, we go after one another. We go to walk beside one another. I wonder today, are you imagining Greensburg Baptist? As you and I, let's be honest, we always see holes or areas and deficiencies. I might ask you today, what role do you think that God would have you to play to help us become more of those things? I mean, this church that's being spoken of in the scriptures, it's, to be honest, it's hard to come by. It's almost like finding a precious jewel. The reality is, instead of humility in many of our churches, it's identified by pride. Instead of like holiness, there's sin. Instead of like living missionally, there's complacency. And I think we would all say to us today, the scriptures say to us, but I think spirit testifies inwardly that God wants something more than that. That God died, that Christ came and he gave his life. That there might be a church that truly loved one another. There might be a holy church. There might be a church who cares for one another, our brothers and sisters around us. So today, might we hear this truth, this hope that the heartbeat of the church is humility. Humility is the heartbeat of the church. Humility is, as the Apostle Paul simply said, right? As you think about, well, what is humility? The Apostle Paul, I think, said it very well in Philippians chapter 2. In humility, consider others what? Better than yourselves, greater than yourselves, more important than yourselves. That's humility, right? It's thanking more of others. And so today, let's walk through the first 14 verses of Matthew 18, seeing this heartbeat of the church revealed, this 
this posture of humility. The first truth, I think, that comes from the first four verses is that humility is required to enter the kingdom of heaven. Humility is required to enter the kingdom of heaven. Pick up the wood, the first verse of Matthew 18. It says, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, listen, think about the background just for a moment, right? Back in Matthew 16, verse 15, Jesus asked Peter, but who do you say that I am? And Peter made that great confession we talked about several weeks ago in verse 16 of Matthew 16. You are the Christ, the what? The son of the living God. And Jesus responds and says to him, I'm going to build my church upon you, upon that great confession, upon the apostles and the prophets. Right? And so we, we see that starting to form. And so the reality is the disciples are starting to, it's starting to go off in their mind like, dude, he's the Messiah. That means that he's the, the king. And if he's the king, that must mean that he has a what? A kingdom. And so the question is starting to resonate in their hearts. is like, well, I wonder who's most important. And that's set off more. Why? Because in chapter 17, guess what we saw happen? Peter, James, and John go with Jesus on this little staff retreat up the mountain. And they're gone for almost a week. And they come back and these guys are buzzing, but they won't tell them what happened. And so can you imagine maybe naturally they're starting to wonder a question maybe that at some point you wondered? Mom? Dad? Grandma? Grandpa? Am I your favorite? You ever been there? I think that's what they're wrestling with. I mean, let's be honest. I think this question, right? Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? I think it reminds us of the apostles, the disciples here, but also of our own hearts, that none of us are wired for humility, are we? I mean, like, it's hard. Let's just be honest. I mean, I I, I remember especially as a kid, but even now I struggle with it, like wanting the biggest present at Christmas, right? Do you remember as a kid, like, when you wanted the biggest box around there? Like, I mean, the kiddos at times are like, oh, look whose box that is. Like, I mean, like, it just, it makes you feel important. Let's be honest. Like, I don't know about you, but like, man, like the last cookie or the last brownies, like the Holy Grail around our house. They're like, stay back, right? I mean, like, they, but we just, we just want that, right? I mean, let's be honest. When we have plays here at church, like we just want our kid to be in the lead role. I mean, let's be honest. You think about your life, like you think you should have gotten that job. That promotion should have been you. I think, and let's be honest, in one way or another, we are all like Muhammad Ali in this place and we're crying out, I am the greatest. So we might ask the question then, How does Jesus deal with our pride? How does Jesus deal with their pride? And might we ask, you know, just as we move further, like, why is pride even such a big deal? So look what he says, beginning in verse 2. And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus puts their pride and our pride on notice. And he says to them, unless, guys, unless you do this, unless you turn, unless you repent of living for yourself, of putting yourself in the first seat and become like children. Notice what he says here. Here's the danger. So unless you turn, unless you become like children, notice what the warning is. You will never enter where, church? The kingdom of heaven. Right? We might ask, well, why is that? Why is pride such a big deal? I think because pride is the ultimate rebellion against God, isn't it? Pride says, I'm good enough, or I'm good, or I'm good enough, right? I mean, listen, it's by saying that is, we're saying to God, like, you're not actually as good and holy as you say you are in your word. 
We might even say in our pride that our sin really isn't that big a deal. I mean, like, yeah, it's, it's, not, it's not good, but it's not that big a deal. When we do that, listen, anytime we minimize our sin, we minimize the sacrifice of Christ and the holiness of God. Pride says, I can get through life on my own, and the reality is I can find a way to get to my own eternity. In essence, pride is the ultimate saying, God, I don't need you. And it begins to manifest itself in all kinds of ways, right? I mean, you walk into that house today, and after all, it's your house. You you paid for it. You're making the payments for it. I mean, the reality is we oftentimes just bypass praying even before meals, right? And again, I'm not saying we have to become religious in that, but the sense is, right, that oftentimes we don't pause and say, God, thank you for that meal because we think we provided it after all. The truth is our heart posture in so many different ways just starts to say that we've done this on our own. It's our strength. But guess what? That's not only in our individual lives. It happens in the church. I mean, I've shared it with you from this pulpit many times. Pride is a thing I struggle with. I have a tendency to think nobody could preach like me. Maybe you struggle to think nobody could teach that Sunday school class like you do. Maybe nobody could sing on this stage or play an instrument like you. Nobody could lead that area of ministry like you do. Here's the truth. For 2,000 years now, the church has been here before us. And if the Lord wills, it'll be here 2,000 years after us. You and I are but small. It ought to humble us. Pride is a slap in the face of a holy God. And Jesus says not only will it not be tolerated, it will actually keep you from the kingdom of heaven. Thus, what does Jesus say to the question, who's the greatest? He brings the child and he says to them, I tell you the truth, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven call today is to repent to turn to humble ourselves now notice jesus does use a word that is significant times can be overlooked in this passage he says become like children he doesn't say become children he's not calling us to become spiritually childish right i mean the reality is for all of us you've been around children long enough to realize they're sinners right i mean children often have the mentality me first right they can be selfish they can be rude they can think they're the greatest so what is jesus saying then if he's not necessarily saying i want you to become like some of the bad qualities of children but he's using children as an example what is he saying well i think it's sometimes it's a little challenging but i think maybe two things i was set before you one is children are dependent right early on children right i mean when we're first born it's a helplessness right? We can't feed ourselves. We can't change our own diapers, right? I mean, we are totally dependent upon protection from cold, protection from the sun. We are totally and completely dependent upon, right? Our parents, our guardians to provide and protect. I mean, let's be honest. Think about it in this room as maybe the example of comparing adults to children. The likelihood is that many adults in this room spend a lot of time worrying about the ice storm and you're already perplexed about the storm that's coming. We're, we're stressing about politics and about the economics, about our country, right? We're stressing about all these different number of things happening in our life. But my guess is for many of our children today, they're not worried about that at all. It's been a blip on their radar. Maybe they heard about it for a moment, but they're not stressing. They're not worrying. Why? Because they live, most of them live in homes where they are provided and protected. And they realize that mom and dad, the guardians that God has put in their life, are the ones that have that responsibility to help provide and protect. And there's just a humility, a dependence that children have that's an example to us. But even given that, some of you felt the tension in that example. Because you know, some of you, they're in your classroom. Some of you, you minister to them here in this community. You know and you see them. Some of you have been amongst the nations and you know. Some of you have called them to come and live in your home and you now call them son or daughter. Not every child experiences that. And so I think it would be a miss 
for us as we look at this context of the church to not call our church specifically to take care of the least of these in this community. To think of how can we feed for them? How can we provide for them? How could we protect? How can we be a voice of those who have no voice? For others of you, it's going to go another step deeper. You're going to say today, you know what? It's time for my spouse and I to have that conversation about fostering. We just need to take that step. It's time. We've, we've taken some other steps, but man, it's time to talk about fostering. For others of you, it's another step. And again, here's the beauty. As you're looking around, if you look around this church body, you can start. I'm seeing them. You can see the faces of people in this room who have said, hey, you know what? It's time for us to bring a child into our home. Right? I, I think at the very least, every believer in this room has to feel that, guess what? Every child deserves a home where they are loved, protected, and provided. Would the church say amen to that? then I think every believer has a rightful response to say in this place, to pray, God, how do you want me to be, use me to be a part of that? Is that fair? I, for, it'll look different for each of us, but every one of us have a role to play in that. So again, what is Jesus' example in using this unless you become like a little child? I think he's using a physical example to remind us of our spiritual helplessness. It's back in Matthew 5, right? That great Sermon on the Mount in verse 3 where he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If you remember, we talked about how the poor in spirit is this place of humility, realizing you cannot save yourself, that your sins separate you from a holy God. You are wrecked. You are undone. You are crying out, Your mercy! Your mercy, Lord! It's this idea of, again, children are dependent. So I think that's one of the things that Jesus says, become like children. There's a reminder of our dependency, but also children are authentic. Right? I mean, I think there's moments, especially children prior on to, to becoming on into maturity and growing up some, right, where they aren't as aware of identity, right? They might do things that embarrass you, right? They might just do little moments. I mean, let's be honest. Like if you, this is kind of an extreme example, but if you're in a place and a child lets a tootie, you don't think like, oh, that's so inappropriate. You probably all laugh, right? That's just with children, right? They're not thinking around like, oh, no, that's so, so embarrassing. But at some point in our life, right, different things start to happen. They're like, oh, that's not appropriate, right? I mean, let's be honest. At different places and times as you start to grow up, we start to put on our mask. We come in this place like everything's good. Like, let's just be honest. We pretend like we're good with God, but the reality is on the inside, man, we are wrecked and undone. I think children remind us of the authenticity before we learn in life how to manipulate others to get our way or to get out of trouble. They just remind us of that authenticity and that openness and just being real and transparent. Sometimes it's just refreshing, if you will, if you watch little children, watch them worship. They're not worried about if you hear how they sound or if the motions look too silly. It's just worship. And I think children just remind us of this dependency, but also this authenticity. And pride so often keeps us from it. I was reminded of this this past week. On Monday night, we were around the table, Emily and Josiah and I, we were playing sequence and we were battling it out and we were having some type of conversation in the midst of dealing out the next hand. And I remember I said something about Emily. I don't know if we're talking about Valentine's Day. And Josiah was like, yeah, Dad, she's the prettiest girl in the whole world. Right? And his dimples went up, right? I love you, Josiah. He's probably embarrassed now. But like his little dimples lit up and Emily's face just started like glowing. Then he gives his mom a kiss. And I was like, dude, those are the moments, man. When it's not about trying to get out of trouble or manipulate or because dad said, hey, go tell mom she looks pretty today. Those are the moments of authenticity. But it's also a moment of humility. Right? I mean, C.S. Lewis has said it, I think, says it well. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. Listen again, humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. So again, might we ask as you think about children, does that define you? 
just dependent upon the Lord, trusting in Him, being authentic, of saying, Lord, I'm undone. I need you, God. I need you to heal my heart, to rescue me. I think this, this has to call us all, remind us all, that the most important people in the church are not the most influential. It's not those who have the greatest spiritual gifts, and it's not those who are the wealthiest. Now listen, those doesn't mean those are bad things. God, those are gifts, spiritual gifts. God's blessed you maybe with wealth or resources or finances. But the reality is the tendency can become that those things in the church make you more important than others. And that's exactly what Jesus is coming against. He says, I think what Jesus is saying to us today is what God values most is our humble hearts. Humility is putting others before ourselves. It's acknowledging our own sinfulness and our utter dependence upon the Spirit to make our lives great. I think hopefully this encourages everyone because there are some in here who feel like you're always at the back of the line of the church because you don't have the gifts like those people. Because you haven't made it in the eyes of the world like certain other people in the church and you can always feel like maybe you should just draw back and stay in the shadows. I think it must remind us today that our value to the kingdom of God, our value to the church is always about our heart posture and not about our titles. Our value, again, I want to say that clearly, our value to the kingdom of heaven, according to Christ's own words, is our heart posture and not our titles. Maybe that stings a little bit in my life, and maybe for some of you it stings as well. Here's the good news. Listen to what Jesus says again in verse 3. Jesus says, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like little children. It's a moment of mercy and grace because there's still time. So maybe you haven't gotten it right. Maybe you aren't getting it right right now. Your heart posture is one of pride in this place. What a moment and opportunity for you and I to repent, to turn and become like children, to humble ourselves. Why? Because humility is the heartbeat of the church. Jesus is clearly. And so maybe you would ask today, well, well, Blake, how do I know if I'm humble? And I think Jesus gives us a really clear way next, right? And it kind of brings this truth is that humility is revealed by making war on our sin. Humility is revealed by making war on our sin. Look what he says beginning in verse 5. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Right? You hear that statement, right? You're thinking about Jesus when he says on the last day there's going to be people that have come before him. And he's going to say to his disciples, his servants... I tell you the truth, whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, what? You did it unto me. You did it for me. Jesus is saying the same thing. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Notice again how Jesus is speaking here. So it's important so you understand what he's saying. Notice again, he speaks about a child... He causes them, next he says in verse 6, that they are little ones. And then finally he says that they are those who believe in me. So Jesus isn't specifically speaking about little children. He's using the example, the analogy of a little child to represent believers. It's been said that this is maybe one of the most helpful chapters of understanding who we are as believers. We are like children. We don't always get it right. And praise God, we have a merciful and gracious Father. Amen? Might that remind us also that when other people in the church do us wrong, we shouldn't be surprised. Why? Because they too are children. They too have struggles. They too are weak. We are called to forgive. Have you often seen how quick kids can forgive? It's like they're trucking each other. Like, I'm amazed by it in my house. Like, I mean, it's like one moment, it's like fisticuffs and everything's flying. And the next moment, they're like in the corner singing, Kumbaya, my Lord. I'm like, what just happened? 
And I think how instructive that is because if I have like the minor spat with my wife, I can be quiet and stonewall her for hours or a day. It's Valentine's Day, but that's what's up. I mean, is it not amazing how children just, they, they're so instructive in the way that they show mercy and grace and willing to forgive? It's just, it's unbelievable. So again, the context here is Jesus is speaking about believers. And I think the tendency can become, right, is that we begin to look down on one another's. In pride, we reject or ignore the least of these. And let's be truthful, though. I mean, Jesus brings the child and then why? Because in their culture, children, orphans specifically, and widows were the most overlooked. That's what James writes. And so this is pure and faultless religion, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Nobody was there to protect and provide so often for children. Thus, listen, the, the church was to be the place, Jesus says, where the weak and the least were not only welcome, but they are celebrated. Can you imagine that kind of church? Where the least of these in Green County can come and feel like this is a place I'm loved. This is a place I'm cared for. I may not experience that at home or at school. I may not excel anywhere else. But here, amongst these people, I am loved. I am fed. I am cared for. I am instructed in the way of the Lord. I am shown grace. I am shown mercy. I am spoken the truth to, but it is done in love. Nothing like what I experience other places. That's the church. Is that this church? Right? We all must ask those questions. The danger, I think, is when we don't do those things, when we don't welcome the least of these, when we say get to the back of the line, Jesus says the danger is that when you have that kind of heart posture, that kind of pride as a church, as believers, it would be better for you to have a great millstone fastened around your neck and thrown in the depths of the sea. Why? Because I think our pride might lead others to believe that God doesn't love them, He doesn't accept them, because after all, the church doesn't. And that's so serious that Jesus says it would be better if you had this massive stone tied around your neck and thrown in the deepest of the ocean. It's a real warning. There's some real stinging warnings to pride in this place. Might we, by the power of the Spirit, hear it today and humble ourselves? Jesus is not finished, though. Again, humility is it's revealed by making war on our sin. Look what he says further to them. Verse 7, Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. This is hard. Look what he says again in verse 8. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. Some of you, man, you're ruled by pornography. Get rid of the phone. Get rid of the TV, the computer, whatever. Tear it out, throw it away. Wow, that's too, it's too extreme. It's too extreme. No, this is what's too extreme. Jesus says it's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown to hell of fire. He's saying it's better to go through life without the phone. It seemed like an outsider of the culture than to take your phone into the hell. Here, though, listen to, this, listen to this danger, I think. The reality for the person that Jesus is describing, they may outwardly look great. Their family may be in order. Their ministry or position, the church may be thr- fr- flourishing or thriving. But inwardly. Maybe nobody sees. Inwardly, their heart is strained. 
let's be honest, this doesn't surprise us why. We've seen example after example of men just like me. This is what humbles me. It's what I often pray. God, please. But it's hard enough. You're here with us pray so often. God, keep us close and clean. There have been so many men who have stood in pulpits just like this. Some great evangelists, some who have even just recently passed. Men who have been used so mightily of God and yet inwardly they're engrossed in sin. God, please don't let that be me and I pray it won't be you. I mean, listen, outward, yes, the fruit is important, but let's be honest, it's not always, it's not always an indicator of what's happening inwardly. In fact, Paul says those very words in 1 Timothy 5, verse 24, he says, the sins of some do not appear until later. They've hidden them well. I think this is the greatest danger. We think because we are getting by with it. Our spouse doesn't know. Mom and dad don't know. Our friends don't know. Our employer doesn't know. The government hasn't caught on yet. We think because we're fooling others outwardly, somehow we're getting by with it. But beloved, beloved, hear this today. God does not look at what man looks at. For man looks at the outward appearance. But God looks at what? The heart. The psalmist says, death and destruction lie open before the Lord. How much more? The hearts of all people. None of us are hidden before Him. The truth is, as we apply that to the church, we can come in this place and still sing the songs, we can amen the sermons, we can give the offering, and we can even go on the mission trips all the while we are winking in our sin as if it's no big deal. So what are you and I to do today if this is true of us? Listen to what the Master says. Jesus, what would I do if this was true of me today? Nobody here knows it. The people sitting next to me, even the closest, they don't know the sin that I'm engrossed in. Master, what would I do? Holy Spirit, instruct us this morning. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. Further, verse 9. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. Don't forget the context. Jesus is speaking about the community of believers. So in essence, we would say the church is going to be formed as we come into the book of Acts and on. I think it's this reminder must hit with all of us today that sin is in the church. Why? Because you and I are in the church and we're sinners. So instead of trying to hide it and pretend like it's not us or this is about other people around us, might today we hear that old word, imagine the seat you're sitting in and put a circle around and say, God, start the revival here in this place with me. But again, the question so then is, how as believers should we deal with sin? I think Jesus says, cut it off. What an extreme metaphor. And why, Jesus, would you use a metaphor so so graphic? I think because extreme danger calls for extreme measures of escape. Extreme danger. Now clearly, listen, don't hear this and press it to the end. Jesus is not calling for self-mutilation. Right, Maybe you struggle with some form of sin and your feet are indeed taking you there. Your hand is partaking it, putting it into your body. Your eyes are engrossed in seeing it. He's not saying to cut off your hand or cut off your feet. What's he saying to why? Because we know this truth. You can cut off your hand, you can pluck out your eyes, but your heart is still sinful. It's the heart. You might wonder, Blake, why would anybody be willing to do that kind of serious Dealing with their sin. 
Listen to what he said in verse 8 and 9. Because if you don't, with your two hands and your two feet, you're going to be thrown into eternal fire. It's better, verse 9, for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Throughout church history, the, the majority of conservative theologians have advocated for what is called an eternal conscience punishment. There are many who believe that in the end all roads lead home and you, you've heard even maybe the adage love wins, like that somehow at the end God will save everybody. But that's clearly not what Jesus is teaching. Jesus is saying that there is a place that he himself defines as eternal. Furthermore, there are those who believe that like that hell, like it, or once you die, like you just cease to exist. Like you just your body's done, they put you in the grave, life's over. That's not what Jesus is saying. He says you're going to be thrown into the eternal fire, thrown into the hell of fire. I mean, let's be honest. If that is the adage, then as Paul says, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. That's what the population of his culture was saying in that day and time. Paul said if there's no resurrection, if there's no life beyond this one, then live it up. But Jesus clearly says to us, guys, I want you to know, listen, if we, if we don't take hell seriously, we won't take our sin seriously. If we don't take the holiness of God seriously, we're not going to take our sin serious. And so the Bible is saying to us, Christ is saying to us, the sting of these words is lost if there is no eternal hell. The danger of these words of being thrown into the hell of fire is not real if the punishment or life just ceases at the grave. Thus, we could say today that a holy church does not imply a sinless church, but a holy church, a humble church, is a group of people who are waging war on their sin. I want to be clear to this. If you are here and you are struggling with sin, you're battling sin, which I assume is every single one of us. A mark that you are truly a believer is not the fact that you have struggled with sin this week. It's that you're waging war on it today. You're like, God, I no longer want to live that way. God, I no longer want to continue in that. Lord God, whatever I must do, if I have to cut it off, I have to get rid of the phone, if I get the TV out of my house, Lord, if, if I have to step away, I've known, I've known believers that have stepped away from jobs because the relationship that they were having with someone that wasn't their spouse was that dangerous that it was worth walking away from a good job for because that relationship was that dangerous. That's serious cutting off. But sin is that serious. It's that serious. That it causes us to cut it off, to step away, to do things that other people would say, there's no way, that's too drastic. But believers, we give evidence of our salvation, not by the fact that we sin, we all struggle with it. But the fact that we are waging war on it in this place, and we are not comfortable with it, and we desire to repent and to turn like little children to the Father. I want to be clear before we leave this section before anyone is confused, we do not overcome sin on our own. It is not possible. I want you to know today that you are not alone and you're waging a war against sin. And if you are truly a believer, I want you to know the hope and the strength and just say, oh man, there is hope and rescue for someone like me. Here it is. Listen to the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8, verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Did you hear it? Notice what he says, it's by the Spirit that you can put to death the things you and I struggle with. Hallelujah, church! We're not alone! The strength to overcome the things that you struggle with and I struggle with 
It's the power of the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit that gives us the desire to hate our sin and the power to cut it off. And listen, here's the good news. Lord willing, we come the next week in Matthew 18, we're going to see that one of the ways that we wage war on our sin is by allowing other believers to speak truth into our life. We're going to see as we address the issue of church discipline and coming to that truth. So I might ask today a question in light of this text here in this moment. How far will you go to save your soul? They don't hear that and think, well, you're talking about like I got to do some type of work. No, absolutely not. But I'm saying that in the, you're striving to be like Christ and you're walking out of your faith. Remember, we're never working to the cross, always from the cross, working his power that works in us. I'm asking you today, though, a practical question. And you as you battle sin in your life, how far are you willing to go to save your soul? Amputation is never easy, but there is times when it is absolutely necessary to save the body. Today is the Holy Spirit showing you a sinful habit, maybe a sinful relationship, maybe it's a sinful career path, maybe it's just the exercising of personal freedoms that is going to become a stumbling block to you or to others. The humble and holy church member says it's better to lose those things than to lose my soul. Might we be reminded today of the words of the great Puritan theologian John Owen, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Hear it again, the words of John Owen, the great Puritan theologian. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. So humility is clearly the heartbeat of the church. It's required, Jesus says, to enter the kingdom of heaven. We know that humble hearts are ones where sin is never welcomed, right? We're always at war, always by the power of the Spirit, putting to death the deeds of the body. Finally and lastly, as we look upward, we're also looking outward to the body of Christ. And we come to this truth. Humility goes after the strain. Humility goes after those who are strain. Look what he says beginning in verse 10 of Matthew 18. See that you do not, do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven the word despise here is a compound word, and my assumption is that some of your translations probably have something rendered differently. If you look at Again, if you have your Bible, look there and see if it does. Does anybody have anything different there? See that you do not what? Look down. Yes, that's it. It's a compound word that's being used in the original language, which indicates literally to look down. Jesus is saying, don't be prideful, right? I mean, I, here's the reminder. Although it's possible, it is much more difficult to look down on others when you're down serving them. Have you experienced that truth? It's, 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 it is possible to have a heart posture of pride while you're serving, but it's more challenging when you're down washing the feet of others. Serving behind the places. The danger, right? I mean, the danger is for, for preachers, you're always up front. People are seeing week after week. The danger is you begin to think the church is about you. But the, again, Jesus says, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. Again, other believers specifically those maybe in the church who are seen as the least of these. He says, don't look down on them. Don't have that prideful heart toward them. And so he's warring there, telling us. But again, look what he says, for, right? So again, let's walk through this passage right here because this, this last part of the, the verse is challenging. So again, he says, see that you're not despised when little ones, for. Okay, so the word for indicates because. Here's why I'm saying that. I tell you that in heaven, this statement here is one we've got to wrestle with, their angels... So the there, right, speaks of the little ones, right? So we're kind of putting that together. Their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. This gives root to the question, do we all have guardian angels? I'm not convinced that's what it's saying. 
But I can't say definitively that's not what Jesus is saying. But I, again, that, that, if you ask me, Blake, do you think we all have guardian angels? I, I would say, no, that's not my position I hold to. All right, we could talk through, there's all kinds of texts. Acts chapter 12, you can check out different ones. You can look back in the book of Daniel, and there, there's one, right, Michael is watching over a nation. But we, we can walk through a lots of things. Here's what I think is clear, okay? So again, sometimes we look at things and like, man, that's just not as clear. But here's what is definitively clear. And here's the role of angels that's definitively clear. Let's look there for a moment. Hebrews chapter 1, you see it there on the screen, verse 14. So in this passage, right, Hebrews 1, uh, the writer is telling us how Jesus is greater than the angels. And then he gives us a little example of, well, what do angels do? What is part of their role, right? And here's part of angels' role. Verse 14. Are they not all ministering spirits? Sent out to, notice what he says here, serve. Well, who are they serving? For the sake of those who are what? To inherit salvation. So they're serving the little ones, right? Those are those who are going to inherit salvation. So I think this is what you can absolutely definitively walk away with today knowing this. Angels are present, and as believers, they are protecting and watching over you. Physically, in ways, absolutely. But even more so spiritually, they are at war, right? There's Ephesians 6 talks about this warfare that's happening that we can't see. And there are angelic beings that are watching over, protecting and guarding, right? But listen, no, no matter what you think about this context, like, well, Blake, I don't know. I think maybe there's guardian angels. Don't miss the context. The point of Jesus saying here is not to talk to us or say we got to get on this rabbit trail about guardian angels, even though it's a great question. The point of the context is this. Don't look down on others. Why? Because the angels are watching over that little one. And they are in the very presence of God. He's giving a warning to the church. When you step over or step on other people because you think they're not as valuable or as important to the body of Christ as you are, be warned. The angels are present and God himself is seeing and watching. It's a warning. To not look down, to not despise. That's, that's his point here. Jesus giving us. So again, I think the church goes after the strain. Why? Because God takes our care of others seriously. He does. Secondly, I think the church goes after the strain because God cares for the one. God cares for the one. Listen to what he says here. Beginning in verse 12, which is interesting, right? So if you're following along in your Bible, you're going to have some wrestling, right? You're like, well, Blake, I just saw you were in verse 10 and now you're in verse 12. Did you skip verse 11? Ah, again, this is time, man. Like you can feel like in every sermon, like there's 10,000 ways you can go on all kinds of different directions. Here's what's happening with verse 11. Verse 11 is not in the most original manuscripts that we have of the Greek New Testament. Now, if you have some translations of the Bible, you're going to have a verse 11 there, okay? Verse 11 is going to echo Luke chapter 19, where speaking about Zacchaeus, he says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what? That which was lost, right? It's the very thing that verse 11 says. Okay, again, likely is that some later some scribe wrote that in, but the most original manuscripts that we have don't have verse 11. And so that's why you're going to see from verse 10 to 12. And so you may have a footnote at the bottom where they write in verse 11 saying some manuscripts add this. So again, but depending upon your translation, you may have a verse 11 right there in the middle of the text. And the reason why it's not in the ESV and others is because the most original manuscripts that we now have don't have a verse 11. So again, I felt like that needed to be dealt with. If you've got more questions, let's talk, okay? Verse 12, what do you think? He gives now a parable. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? So to my farmers here, if you have one cow today that is out, are you going looking for the cow? Raise your hand. I'm good. You got good farmers. So we need to ask the question now to the church. 
if we have one church member who goes astray? Have we gone or are we going? Are our hands going up for that too? But listen to what Jesus says again. This shepherd leaves the 99 on the mountains and goes and searches the one that went astray. And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. I think this text should give comfort to us all. That no matter how insignificant you may feel today in this place, after all, what is one of a hundred? The good news is God sees you, He knows you, He loves you, He cares for you, and He's coming for you. That's a good God. That's a good shepherd. That's a good faithful God. Why? Because some of you feel forgotten. You feel lost. You're straying this morning. I want you to hear to the body of Christ this morning. Again, this is the context of the body of Christ. God the Father is looking for you. Man, it's God's care for each member of the body of Christ. But listen, this shouldn't surprise us. Why? Because that's how God loved us before the body of Christ. Right? Luke tells the parable and Jesus there speaks about those who are lost in his example. Using the same story. And and he says to us, listen, that prior to becoming children, even when we were dead in our sins and our rebellion, before we ever had a desire to cut off sin, God demonstrates his love for you and I in this, that while we were still sinners, what church? Christ died for us. Mm. That is sweet. There is no valentine on the face of the earth that can tell you that good news today. I promise you that while you and I were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's the hope of the church. It's why it's called the gospel. That's good news. So the good news is God comes for us while we are not part of the hundred. But again, this is in the context of the church. And so this church member, this, this disciple, this little one is strayed. And he says he comes for him. I think it has echoes of passages like Ezekiel 34, verse 16, where he says, here again, the shepherding passage, I will seek the lost and I will bring back the strayed and I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak. And the fat and strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. So just for a moment, right? Think about this. So he says he's going to seek after the lost. He's going to bring back the strayed. It's possible that an area of sin has caused this believer, right? The sheep to wander away. And the call is, again, the context is the church. The church is called to go and to compel one another to repent and return. To walk in faithfulness to the scriptures. Further, he says he's going to bind up the injured. Maybe today you think about those who have had a bad experience in the church. Maybe it's you. Maybe at other churches you've had bad experiences and you were hurt. And it can cause you to grow cold and bitter. It can cause you to say, I'm going to come and be a part of this church, but only at a distance. Maybe you're here and you were once connected, but things have happened and you've felt injured and you've stepped back. I think the call to the church, all of us, is to go and to call them to return, to look to bring healing and reconciliation between us and other believers in the church. He says, I'll strengthen the weak. Maybe you know those in the church through really hard seasons, they've gone through hardships. And because things have happened, they've asked questions like, man, does God love me? Does God care about me? How come we've experienced this and these other people over here don't experience anything like that? And there's just moments when all of us, our faith is just weak. We're struggling. The call is for the church to leave the 99 and go to that one and strengthen that brother, to pray for that sister, to fast, to encourage them, to love on them. The point is the church is to be vigilant, to seek out the ones for whatever reason they've left the flock. They don't press this parable to a point. 
that where you think, well, guess what? The only time I need to go looking for somebody is when they're actually not physically in the church. No, the reality is, let's be honest. There are people in the pews right next to us this morning. Maybe it's you that are lost, strained, injured, and weak. We must walk beside one another in community to know those things. That's why, again, I want to compel you, community groups, Sunday school, time where you are more in a smaller group and you're opening up and being vulnerable. People are speaking truth and holding you accountable. I need it in my life. And if you're interested, again, I'll encourage you, community groups, Sunday nights, come, be a part. We all need it. Why? Why is this so big, such a big deal? Look what he says. So it's not the will of my Father. Verse 14, who is in heaven, that one of these little ones should perish. There's a real danger here. Now, obviously, you find yourself in, in a, a covenanted community of believers who are convinced that the Scriptures teach that, listen, those who are truly born again will never perish. Why? Why do we come up with that? Because that's what Jesus says in John 10 and 28. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. He goes on to say that they are in my hand, the Father's hand, who is greater than all, and no one can what? Pluck me out of that hand. So we are convictionally holding to the truth that those who are truly little ones, born again, they will never perish. But let's not lose the sting, the warning of this passage. Jesus calls us as believers to continue cutting off sin. It's not to say, well, I'm good. I punched my card. I'm going to heaven now. That's not the heart. That's not a heart of humility. That's a heart of pride. Matthew, as he speaks and uses this word perishing throughout, it speaks of death, of eternal death. There's a real warning. Maybe you might ask today, well, isn't that the responsibility of the pastors and elders? Aren't they supposed to be watching out for the flock? Aren't they supposed to give care for the flock? Absolutely. You are exactly right. And we are, and we're striving. We need to do that better. And you can pray for us and encourage us and maybe help us in other ways that we're not seeing today, how we can better do that. But remember, again, the context, Jesus is writing, this is how the covenant community of believers looks. And one of the things that the community, the body of Christ, does is they watch out for one another. They see who others are straying and struggling in different areas, and they go beside them. So I want to maybe just ask you practically, who's one person you know in this church body that is straying? Now, maybe they're not here physically, right? Now, again, I know COVID's a different season. We're in a unique season and time. But let's be honest, long before COVID came around, and Lord willing, as time continues long after COVID, there are going to be those who are straying from the church. And so we need to specifically go after them. But as you think this morning about somebody maybe who, again, is strained, maybe it was somebody that was once in your Sunday school class that is not anymore. Someone that once was here in worship, maybe they're still here, but you can tell, man, they're struggling. I want to challenge you this week, you. Would you make a visit? Would you make a phone call? Might you write a letter? Reaching out to that brother or sister that you love them, you miss them, you care for them? Even maybe it's in the midst of a season of just COVID and they're away right now because of being at risk or different groups. Man, I'm sure it'd be encouraging them to let them know, hey, I want you to know we still miss you here. You're not forgotten. To the church today, I might just ask this question, and Brother Todd and I, we ask at different points, but might I just ask you this question today? How's your soul? How is your soul? Are you an example to the church body of humility? That you don't look down on others, that you are gentle and lowly of heart like your Savior? How's your soul? Are, are you making war on your sin? Or have you just become complacent like it's just not that big a deal? And, well, man, it used to be a lot worse. Are you making war on that sin? 
How's your soul when you think about, is this church body just about, hey, I show up and do my thing and go out? That's not the church. The church looks after one another. We care for one another. How's your soul? How's the soul of those around you? To the unbeliever today, those who have not acknowledged Christ as Lord and Savior, if Jesus speaks this truth about needing to cut off sin to the church body because they are in danger, right, of of, of those who are not truly born again, of perishing, how much more you that are apart from Christ should hear this warning today that there is real hell to come. There is eternal consequence of suffering. This is Christ's own words speaking about hell today. Today, might you, like a little child, humble yourself and come confessing, I need Jesus. Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Father, forgive me. He was a famous Anglican evangelist. His name was George Whitfield in the 18th century. And he finished several sermons with just this statement. Go and learn what this means. The blood of Christ cleanses from all sin. I think it was a moment of one of the greatest preachers, evangelists that's ever lived, George Whitfield. A moment of humility to realize that it's just impossible in this 35 minutes or whatever we have together to say everything there is about this text. So today, I, I want to say to you gracefully and kindly, I've done my best, but might I compel you and I to go and learn what this means? Unless you turn and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Would you pray with me? Father, in the strong name of Jesus, I pray that your word would do the work by the power of the Holy Spirit. I pray, God, by, for your grace. We sang it this morning, Romans 2 and 14. Your kindness leads us to repentance. Thank you for dying for us. Thank you for the cross that's covered our sin and our shame and our guilt and our rebellion. We are free in this place. Father, I pray for humble hearts like children that would bow our knees in this place, that would bow our hearts and just cry out, God, forgive me. I pray for reconciliation in marriages, in homes, in relationships. I pray for things that are areas in the church where members are at war with one another, hurt by one another. God, would you bring healing there? Father, I pray again that your spirit would do the work that we cannot do in this place. God, please transform our hearts. Give us a humble heart and a holy life who loves our neighbor as we love ourselves. I pray this in Jesus' name, Lord. Amen. This is Todd Young with Greensburg Baptist Church. Thank you for joining us today. If you've accepted Christ during today's podcast, we would love to hear from you and connect you with a home church in your area. Or if you have questions regarding a relationship with Christ, Brother Blake and I would love to speak with you. Please contact us at the church office at 270-932-4495 or connect with us through our website at greensburgbaptist.com. In addition, you may visit our website anytime to access the sermon videos and podcast of any recent sermon. You may also subscribe to our podcast in the iTunes store. Have a great day today.